Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, In the Dark reports Curtis Flowers will be home for Christmas. Could it be the perfect ending of a perfect day? Then you think you know who did it, but... It was all a hoax, maybe. We'll review Netflix's Henry Lee Lucas documentary, The Confession Killer. Join me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, the love of my life, and fanboyed guy at Dunkin' Donuts, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Merry Christmas, Rebecca. We're going to get that story, right? The story about the guy at Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> yes. Do you want it now? you want it later? I'll, I'll have Come it with, back to me? How about okay. during the banter section of the podcast? Oh, okay, sure. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. My neighbor, Dan, got a new kitten, and it's so cute. <laughs> I got off my deathbed to go over and see it this nice. week. Well, so. We are glad you're feeling better. I heard on social media that Thank you were you. sick, Lara. Yeah. I had the flu or something. I don't know. <laughs> I got a flu shot yesterday, and I can't move my left arm. So, you know, oh. I feel for you. Mm-hmm. But not okay. as much as I you probably feel for yourself because you were actually <laughs> sick. <laughs> also with us is our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, our favorite Patreon book club host and guy who looks even better when he's flat, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also the only Patreon book called host. <laughs> well, you're our favorite. You're our favorite. All right. First among one. <laughs> hey, don't knock it. So, Kevin, do you want to tell us about your celebrity experience at Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> I was in the drive-thru at Dunkin' Donuts, and I'm pulling up to the window, and I, I hear somebody yell, Kevin Flynn! And I'm looking all around. I have no idea who it was. And it was the guy behind me, and he starts waving. And I wave back, and I'm thinking... Do I know him? <laughs> he knows me. <laughs> and uh, like he went on Twitter later and said that he, he was a listener. And I think that he picked it up because on the back of my car, I have my Law & Order podcast decal. Your Law & Order marathon sticker. My marathon sticker says 26.2 hours of Law & Order. <laughs> That's right. For your mar- Law & Order marathon. That's how he, he knew it was me. But it used to happen a lot like when I was on TV. Of course, people see you. and Yeah. You know, and now I don't look anything like that guy. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like, I'm sad to be somebody I know. 
So there was a guy in line behind you at Dunkin' Donuts, your native environment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at Dunks? Yeah, okay. So I don't know if Laura and Toby know this, but you have a magic power. What is my magic power? You know the location of every uh, Dunkin' Donuts in New Hampshire. <laughs> like every just single about, one. <laughs> yeah. I'm like an almanac. It does seem like every time we do our check of what everyone had for breakfast, Kevin is always going to the Dunkin' Donuts. Or sometimes he's an Einstein or bagel. Or the Einstein bagel yeah. place. <laughs> yeah. like three places. So, <laughs> he does love a takeout you know. breakfast. Like we literally do have breakfast food in our house, but our listening audience probably does not know that or believe it. I make like a hot cereal for myself or like I actually make breakfast sandwiches sometimes, but you just love Take out breakfast. It's your thing. The best breakfast is one that someone else makes for you. How do you know where every Dunkin' Donuts in New Hampshire is? Look, when, when I was a TV reporter, you had to go everywhere for the story, right? So we covered every bit of the state. And I don't know. I just, we've been in every town so often that I'm like, you know, in Whitefield, I know, oh, yeah, it's right by the laundromat. <laughs> and in Rochester, you're like, okay, it's at that big intersection. You go left and there's the hospital, but you go straight through and the Dunkin' Donuts is on the left next to something else. I just, I don't know. I just have like a feeling about stuff. Can I just ask you a question? A couple yeah. of like quizzes? Yeah. Where's the Dunkin' Donuts in Epping? Oh, well, it's, um, <laughs> it's not at the track. It might be it, more than one. Yeah. It's not at the traffic circle. It's closer to uh, 101 mm. when you get off at exit 7. Mm. It's a mm-hmm. big one. There's also a gas station there. Mm-hmm. It's inside the gas it station, is. right? Yeah. Yeah. That's an <laughs> inaccurate. I don't like that Dunkin' Donuts. Every time I go there, my order is wrong, so I stopped going. Yeah. Uh, Claremont. Where's Dunkin' Donuts? In Claremont? Yeah. Ooh. Uh, it's on it's on Route 2. <laughs> I knew it. Right, because you, like, you have the big... Uh, you have the big uh, town circle, the circle around town. Uh-huh. And so it's not like in the downtown, but it's there's like this little back road by the fire department mm. that starts to lead out of town. Uh-huh. It's actually one of the most dangerous intersections <laughs> in the state. Like apparently the stats, like they have more accidents there than anyway. It's it, that's about where it is. You really do know where every Dunkin' Donuts is. I, it's my superpower. Atkinson. Is there a Dunkin' Donuts in Atkinson? Ah, uh, there is, right, there Laura? There is. There's one in Hampstead. There's one in Hampstead, <laughs> but not Atkinson. Yeah, yeah. In Hampstead, it's across the street from that strip mall with the big pharmacy where the roof <laughs> yeah. collapsed. And they've got they've got a new butcher shop in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I just keep thinking about somewhere there was a lady who snuck away from her family because she couldn't stand them at Christmas put on this podcast <laughs> and was just subjected to 10 minutes of where the Dunkin Donuts in New Hampshire are. It's a thing about you. Yeah. Yeah. There's six in Manchester. We're I can like, tell you where they are. But, but it's so funny because I don't think that people who don't live like in New England understand. Cause I grew up, there were Dunkin Donuts in New York where I grew up, but that was just a place where you went to get your munchkins to bring to like your class Christmas party mm-hmm. or whatever. Like it was not a destination that you went on purpose coffee to get coffee. Coffee has become a different thing. Yes, but, Starbucks. But and, yeah. Dunkin Donuts coffee is terrible and people in New England love it. Like you Love it. I even buy the Dunkin' mm-hmm. Donuts coffee for you to drink at home. That's how much you love it. Can I say? And it still goes out for breakfast. <laughs> it's okay, but I I don't know. I go to the regular little coffee shop because I like getting my like gossip in the morning, so that's where I get no, my coffee. All right. all right. Well, no yeah. one's yelling at you through the drive-in, so. They, no, they were. I was walking down. I go to St. Anthony's downtown, and sometimes I go to Mianali's, and sometimes D squared. I was like walking down the street, and this guy like stopped me. He's like, you. We're on the paper today. (laughs) On the paper. (laughs) I was. My picture was on the paper with my tree and the Festival of Trees. And I was like, yes, I was. And he's like, hmm. He like held it up and just kept walking. I'm like, oh, my God. He he survived the rooster attack of the... (laughs) 
yeah. 2019 holiday <laughs> festival <laughs> massacre. You haven't heard the end of Mocha. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> the unseparation the of, okay, but yeah. the unseparation of church and state of oh, Exeter, New Hampshire. God. Yeah. All right. Well, oh, while we're chit chatting, let me just briefly, because we've taken up a lot of our listeners' time with tales of Dunkin' Donuts. I'm sorry. I just find it very funny that, that is your superpower. It really is. We go anywhere, and you're like, "Oh, there's Dunkin' Donuts around the corner up here," and you're always <laughs> right. <laughs> you're always right. <laughs> Too bad you won't let me stop. <laughs> anyway, uh, right now on our Patreon, on the Patreon after show, we're gonna talk a little bit more about the updates and in the dark and the impact that that podcast has had on that case we're also going to talk a little bit about the upcoming holiday and uh what our wishes and hopes and dreams are for it uh and we should let our listeners know that we are actually taking next week off because the way our production schedule works uh we are dropping an episode today obviously monday and then two weeks from today because we are not taping over the christmas week because we all have plans and that's just the way that it works but so two weeks from now now we're going to come back we're talking about two things we're talking about accused which we said we were talking about tonight but we've moved it so we could cover in the dark and we're talking about a bananas new documentary on netflix called don't fuck with cats excuse my language that's actually what it's called don't fuck with cats i'm i'm all in for that i don't even know what it's about and i'm all in for it tomorrow Hang on to your panties. (laughs) Uh oh, is it gonna be cat cruelty i don't know if i can take that yes yes disclaimer it is that is the actual trigger for the story. It was very difficult for me to watch a couple of parts. You don't actually see it, but it's described. Ooh. But I promise you, it is worth muscling through that description to get to where this documentary is going. I promise. I promise, okay. Laura Bricker. All right. And the other thing we should mention is there's a brand new episode of Leave It to Bricker on our Patreon. And very soon, an amazing episode based on Helter Skelter of Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast is dropping. So please join us on Patreon at $5 or $6 a month. Support the show and get all that great content. We make four podcasts for you there. All right. Who's ready to get started with tonight's show? We are. We are. <laughs> this is going to be a good one. Okay. We are back in Winona, Mississippi. We haven't been here in a while. This has been a while. I'm Madeline Barron, and this is a special update episode of In the Dark. In a bonus episode of In the Dark, Madeline Barron and her team return to Winona, Mississippi to hear arguments in Curtis Flowers' bail hearing. Despite the U.S. Supreme Court overturning the conviction from his sixth trial, the odds of Curtis prevailing seem long. It can be extremely hard to get bail in a capital case, partly because judges often worry that if a defendant is facing death, they might not show up for court if they're let out. There are also plenty of cases, especially ones that involve the most violent crimes, in which judges simply don't think it's safe for the community to have a defendant let out. And so, according to the people we spoke with, Curtis getting bail would be a long shot. Under Mississippi law, in mistrials, Curtis may receive bail if the defense can argue reasonable doubt can be entertained at trial. So his attorney, Rob McDuff, begins a laundry list of the holes in the state's case. This case is unprecedented in the history of the American legal system. Despite six trials, the prosecution has been unable to obtain a lawful conviction. Two of those trials ended with juries who could not agree and resulted in mistrials. The other four were were reversed, all for prosecutorial misconduct. 
In the meantime, Curtis Flowers has spent 23 years in prison without a lawful conviction to justify his incarceration. While legal drama is not over and new episodes are promised, the bonus episode feels like a suitable ending to one of the most important nonfiction pieces of journalism in podcast form ever produced. I cannot overstate this. Now, spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from this bonus episode of In the Dark, including how the bail hearing turned out. So if you want to just ignore something that's been in the news for the last several days, or if you haven't listened to the episode yet, go to the time code listed in our show notes. Now, Kevin? Yeah. I have made the uh, claim that you have said maybe I'm overstating at certain points since In the Dark came out and since the Supreme Court decision and so forth, that you can draw a direct line between the reporting in this podcast and an actual result being obtained in an incredible, singular, true crime case. And you've often said to me, well, you know, they already had a lot of material without For the, the podcast. Supreme Court. Yes. Yes. Can we not agree? Oh, it's not disputable. <laughs> it is not disputable. In this case, why is it not disputable? Did you listen to the first 10 minutes of this podcast? Yes. How would you describe it, the first 10 minutes be, of this podcast? It should be. Attorney McDuff explains to the judge what happened in, in the dark. <laughs> it's called the crime writers on defense. Let me summarize it for you. In episode two, yeah, you know, when I talk about that argument we always have like off air, it's not a put down, obviously, of the incredible work of In the Dark. It's certainly, if you look at the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, reasoning, it doesn't have anything to do with this new evidence. It has a lot to do with the Batson violation and, you know, Their the attorneys already that. had it. Yes. Right. Their they journalism looked, supported it. They supported that, right. Yeah. But this is stuff that were it not for uh, Madeline Barron and APM that this would not come to light and this would not be the opening part of this guy's bail argument. So, yeah, it was actually a really great summary of what the fuck happened in in the dark because I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, that other witness. Yeah, the gun. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, it's like, take that, man. Yeah. Toby, can you imagine what it must be like to be a journalist and a team of journalists working on this story for so long? And then to just go and cover, you know, a, a big event in the story and to hear your own work quoted as the primary source, not just quoted, but played in court as the primary source for this legal argument. Can you even imagine what that must have been like? In an interview with reporters from American Public Media's podcast, In the Dark. One moment, Char. This is actually an excerpt from In the Dark being played in the courtroom. That was a lie. I don't know nothing about this shit. It was all make believe. Everything was all make believe on my part. And with that, the DA Doug Evans star witness had reversed himself. It must have been a combination of gratifying and weird. Mm. I I don't know. I mean, it was strange that, you know, he's literally playing clips in court, like, for this huge hearing. It's like, oh, check out this part from the podcast. And he plays (laughs) it. It's like our show. (laughs) And uh, I I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of, you know, in some ways, it, it just seemed kind of weird. 
It's like you could just listen to the podcast and that's your research. And then you can show up and play part of the podcast and kind of fill in around it with your knowledge of Mississippi law. And that's all you really need to do. It was interesting. Yeah, it sure was. Laura, what did you think of hearing, you know, those clips being played in court and sort of, you know, as a listener, we can't assume, of course, that like Judge Loper was a podcast listener to In the Dark. I mean, although, you know, there's a chance that he may have been because I'm going to say he was. <laughs> but, but In the Dark did bring the case, you know, to the forefront and made people pay attention to the Supreme Court case and Supreme Court verdict. And you have to wonder, like, at some point, does someone like a Judge Loper say, I should probably listen to this. Plus, we hear Judge Loper say. That's exactly what he did. He wouldn't do that. But you hear him say that. be against the ethical rules. Right. But that the the defense presented 23 uh, arguments or whatever, and he read them all and he listened to all the material. So he at least listened to that part of it. Right. Laura, what did you think of this scene and hearing Madeline describe it and then hearing her hear her own voice in this courtroom? Uh, well, I was, you know, that was just amazing when you're you're listening to that and realizing because like, you know, I, I had also kind of forgotten some of the de- like, I'm like listening to like, oh, yeah. And then they went through that tunnel that went from the, you know, and I remember the gun of, and the yes. gun being found. Yeah. Yeah. And all of this work and all of this chasing down people and, you know, good old Willie James Hempel and all those. And and I'm like, you know, it really like was just very sort of validating and about the power of good journalism and and hearing that brought in in this case like this case. It's amazing to think about where this case is because of this podcast. But I wasn't listening to that so much as I was just listening like in the beginning where you know, putting all that reporting into context. And this is the first time that Madeline has seen Curtis Mm. in person this close. And then Curtis walked in. His bald head shone under the harsh overhead lights of the courtroom. He looked like a younger version of his father. The resemblance is that close. He was wearing a dark suit, no handcuffs. It was the first time I'd seen him in person. I was getting emotional listening to it and I just couldn't I mean, she just stayed so composed and so professional and so focused, at, like she always sounds, you know. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I would have been choked up being there when this was happening because just it, it was momentous realizing that this guy is going to get out because of the work that they did. Now, Kevin, Doug Evans didn't show up for this hearing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> and we know he has not responded to any of... The defense motions recently that have been filed in this case. Yeah. And I was under the very strong impression listening to the prosecutor who was sent in his place to do, you know, the arguments. Obviously, you can't read into someone's motivations or be inside their head. It sounded an awful lot to me like he didn't want to be there and like didn't really have a lot of gusto behind what it was he was arguing. He wasn't arguing any of the evidentiary stuff primarily. It was mostly that, like, this obscure Mississippi law doesn't apply here and here's why, but didn't really seem like his heart was in it. Was that just me, like, projecting onto him? I mean, I don't know if you could say his heart is in it. I mean, that that's your interpretation of, of you know, whatever he said. Um, but he does sort of, you know, the, the vigor with which he gave the argument – reminded me of the state's attorney at the Supreme Court, where he's kind of like making chicken salad out of chicken shit. And <laughs> it's like, okay, this is this is what I've, you know, I've given this bad hand. And so I'm going to argue what I can. And I think this guy is a subordinate of, 
of Doug Evans. Yeah, Doug Evans. He's not boss. like someone out of the case. Okay. So he, he can't like throw in the towel and you know be, and go back to his boss and say, ah, well, I didn't really try that hard. Yeah. You know. So if you're not Doug Evans and you you have an open mind, you see the folly of a lot of this evidence. So you don't argue the evidence, you argue the law. That, that kind of goes in line with what you were saying, Rebecca, was like, if you go on like the Into Dark um, Twitter feed or on their website, they have an audio clip of, you know, some of this hearing and they have a picture of that guy and he just looks miserable in that picture. So it kind <laughs> of goes, he's just sitting there on the side in his little blue suit and it's like, Pretty clear that, like, he really got the shit end of the stick that day while Doug Evans is off getting, like, free food at his swearing-in ceremony. So, you know. You mean he wasn't busy with another prosecution? It just seemed like everybody kind of knew what the outcome was going to be. I didn't. No, no. I mean, Toby, this is, like, this is the thing I was going to ask you. Like, you have made the case over and over and over again, and I think you're right that, yes, In the Dark and the Curtis Flowers story is about his case and about the murders and his probably wrongful conviction. But really what it's about is white supremacy. And Madeline Barron, you know, tells us that the courtroom is divided by color. White people are on one side and black people are on the other side. And there's not a single black person on one side and a single white person on the other. So far, I will say it is 100 percent split by race. Mm -hmm. There's not a single white person on Curtis' side other than the lawyers of his who are white. There's not a single black person on the side of the state. It's all white. And we know that Joey Loper, the judge in this case, is the one who had a black juror arrested for hanging a jury uh, in a previous trial. Like, he's no prize, this judge. Like, I certainly was not convinced what the outcome was going to be at all. So, Toby, how important do you think it was to do that scene setting and remind the audience? Of course, it's been preaching to the choir. We've all heard the evidence. We know that he's likely not guilty to remind us that this is really about white supremacy. Yeah, no, I think it's it's very important. You know, this case is a symptom of a larger issue, and that's part of what makes this series great. So reminding us of that, I think, was key. I, the only reason why I said that I, it seemed like everybody kind of knew what was going to happen is because Curtis's sister is weeping with joy the entire time. And you can tell that, as we just talked about, the assistant district attorney it's not a highly energetic performance by him. Obviously, this wasn't true, but it seemed as though he was like reading this stuff for the first time. As for the statutory argument, Your Honor, a plain reading of the statute says, any person having twice been tried on an indictment, charging capital offense, wherein each trial resulted in a failure of the jury to agree upon his guilt or innocence, shall be entitled to bail. It doesn't say reversal. It says each trial. You know, in some ways... It seemed like the real question was, is the judge so invested in keeping Curtis in jail that he's going to rule that way regardless of the strength of the arguments? And so that to me was in some ways the most surprising part, not necessarily that Curtis got bail, but the judge was just absolutely brutal on on the uh, on the state. And you you heard the testimony in our uh, in the prior trials that uh, from from John Johnson and I believe others that that Mr. Flowers was the sus- was the only suspect. In your honor. Well, I've heard that, but yet after the fact, now I'm hearing that uh, somebody else was picked up in hell for for. 
a number of days that was in in fact uh, a suspect. So how does the state reconcile that? You know, I I think that was the most unexpected thing was that he was so harsh and also signaling, I think, what would happen if, you know, it does come to trial in front of him. And and, and I also think that Doug Evans knew what was going to happen, and that's why he stayed away. Hmm. Or at least he was going to be humiliated, and whether he got saved by the judge or not, you know, who knows. But, you know, he did not have the arguments on his side. Laura, I've got a question for you. Yes. So Joey Loper, the judge, does come down on the state for— you know, the evidentiary stuff. But I kind of felt like maybe Loper was really motivated by Doug Evans' non-response to all of these filings. Don't you feel like that was what kind of got under his skin and maybe turned the tide here? I find it hard to believe that they're not totally oblivious to the Supreme Court ruling in this case, even though Doug Evans pretends to be. Um, it, you, you know that the judge is well aware of that and that, you know, the eyes of, uh, you know, the legal community and people, they have they have some watchdogs now and they are under the microscope. And I think that, you know, adding to that, Doug Evans, like I just it's ridiculous that he it's like he's just like, fuck you. I don't have to respond. I don't have to do anything. And and the thing that is ridiculous is he can do that and he gets reelected. But I kind of wonder if if finally having somebody in like his own circle of court connections and people that he appears, you know, in front of on a regular basis like that, kind of like, you know, call him out on his bullshit is going to make a difference. I just thought it was like ridiculous that he, first of all, sends this poor guy in his place. And, you know, you you clearly, you know, what's going to happen, that it's not going to be good. But I also find it very interesting that like, the lengths they go to the, the in the dark team to talk to Doug Evans and he will never, you know, he's always like, he's not in, he's not in. But then he uses the local paper to send these little jabs back at them. Do you guys notice that where he's like, yeah. mm-hmm. oh, I just like, oh my God, Doug Evans. He makes me so crazy. But I did like that expression. What was the expression the judge used at the end that they're going to reap the, the whirlwind? The whirlwind. So I just will have this caution for the state of Mississippi. If it continues in its dilatory conduct and if it continues to Ignore orders issued by the court. The state of Mississippi will reap the whirlwind. Yes. Reap the whirlwind. I'm like. Continue to act in a dilatory manner. I looked up dilatory. What does dilatory mean, Kevin? It means like slow walk. It means on purpose to delay. um, Yes. Yes. And I used it at work. I feel like when I open the podcast and we talk about Dunkin' Donuts for 10 minutes, that's me acting in a dilatory manner. (laughs) Right? <laughs> That's a good example, yes. <laughs> now, Kevin, were you surprised at Judge Loper's proactive stance in this hearing? Kinda. Yeah. K- kind of, yes, because, you know, it's already been demonstrated that, you know, that he has taken a- action in a way that uh, we have found to be troubling in regards to, you know, justice for black people in his community. So the fact that he appears to have taken in all the new evidence kind of reminds me a little bit of the judge from The Staircase. I was going to say the judge from the Supreme Court known as no, Brett Kavanaugh. No. <laughs> the judge from The Staircase right. who, you know, at the, the the appeal was about whether the blood spatter evidence expert, yeah. well, you know, was a fraud. Which he was. And he was. And he was very, he was, the judge was very resigned to the idea that this was an unfair trial because of that. And I think, like Laura says, he knows he's been played the fool. 
in a lot of this stuff. I asked you, Attorney Evans, about whether or not you had any other suspects, and you said no. Right. And you find out you had all this stuff here. Yeah. So, yeah, he definitely uh, is not was not a happy camper. And I will say my takeaway for the Curtis Flowers defense team is if you do go to trial, bench trial. Mm. Don't throw your fate with 12 Winona res- residents who say they don't know anything about this case. Right. That judge is willing to keep an open mind now about the evidence there. And he's kind of already hinted that the state's going to have to do an awful lot to remove any reasonable doubt. I have a follow up question for you. Yeah. Because you wrote a note on our script that I just want to ask you about because you obviously worked as a journalist for a long time. We hear Madeline uh, really do her due diligence and go and try to talk to some of the family members of the tardy furniture victims sitting on the prosecution side of the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And there's just one incredible piece of tape that I just want to play real quick. Yes. How are you doing? I'm fine. This is Frank Ballard. His mother-in-law was Bertha Tardy, one of the people killed at the store. What do you think of what just happened? What I think what's happened? Yes. I think the judge has to decide what happens. What do you think should happen? Bless your heart. Thank y'all. All right. Now, for those of you who do not know in this audience, bless your heart is, in fact, code for fuck you. Yes. Everyone from the <laughs> South knows that. Um, but, Kevin, you made the note that, like, we shouldn't put victims' family members as proxy for, like, they're not the, the bad villains. guy. Right. Yeah. They're not the villains in the case, even though their view is contrary to what we think it is. They should not be proxy for the prosecutors and law enforcement officials who acted dishonorably and uh, dishonestly. You know, they are victims. They are uh, in pain because someone killed their loved one. They were told by the authorities that we will get justice for you. It's this guy over here. They have every reason to want to believe that. They're also victims of Doug Evans and his they work. Are, right. They are victims of Doug. But, you know, sure, are they angry and they see Madeline Barron and they're not going to send her a Christmas card this yeah. year because of all this? Yeah. I hear as soon as, you know, I heard the guy say, bless your heart in that way. I was like, oh, yeah. OK. She's like going in enemy territory here. But it really isn't a fight with them. Right. They have a different view. They're probably never going to believe unless you can show, no, it was somebody. It it may not help, yeah. It may not help. But we shouldn't be angry with them. We shouldn't look down at them because those are their feelings. They were told by people they trusted that this is what happened. Right. And they, and like I said, they are also victims of Doug Evans' misconduct. They may not see themselves that way. Yeah. That doesn't matter. That's what they are. And we should feel for them. I I think we should feel for them no matter what, even though, yes- some of them are probably also right. white supremacists, right. which we've heard over and over again. <laughs> but in the we, as listeners, shouldn't respond in kind yeah. by thinking by by uh, sending the bile that we want to send to Doug Evans right. and his team to them. All right. Well, I want to just flip to close to the end of the episode. Uh, Madeline and Natalie Jablonski, by the way, who is wonderful. I spent some time with her. She was on a panel that I uh, hosted this summer, and this whole team, by the way, every single person. Ah, damn it. Does it hurt? The name that I dropped in? Yeah, right on the foot. You dropped that name right on my foot. They're all wonderful. They go and stand in a tornado that is approaching (laughs) the jail. And by the way, there was a tornado in Mississippi, I know, because one of the HGTV shows I watch, Hometown, their their town was like very heavily hit by a tornado. So there were tornadoes in Mississippi that day. Oh, I thought thought you meant like the crowd of media that was suddenly there that had not been there prior. No, there was literally (laughs) a tornado approaching. (laughs) But they're standing outside, and we finally hear Curtis Flowers emerge 
after 20 plus years behind bars. Curtis is walking out of jail right now. With Priscilla and his lawyers. Yep. And Sharita. Mm-hmm. So he's walking out. There's Curtis wearing his suit that he was wearing in the courtroom. He's walking with one sister, each, one on each side of him. Priscilla and Sharita. Toby, what did you think of this scene? Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's cathartic. I mean, it, it's, it was interesting, A, to hear from him for the first time. He, he comes across as sort of a mellow, gentle guy. And it's just, you know, he's kind of talking in these measured tones. And then he's like, oh, I'm just, I'm so excited. I can't even think. How are you feeling? How are you feeling right now? I feel good right now. I'm, I'm happy. I'm out. Uh, to be spending time with family. Uh, Man, that's you excited. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was, it's, it's emotional. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard to imagine what that feeling would be like to be incarcerated for 23 years for something you didn't do. And those first few moments when you're getting out and you're having to answer questions about what it's like in front of all these cameras uh, and people with microphones, which you've never had to deal with before in your life. The, the whole arc of the story is incredible. Laura, what are your thoughts? Um, that's the part where I was listening and I was getting really choked up because he just sounded so sincere and kind. And I can't imagine still sounding that way after what he's been through. I mean, the fact that he's he's kept his humanity after what he's gone through. But what really got me was listening to Madeline asking questions of him. And I was just thinking, oh, my God, how must she feel being there after all the work she's done on this case, and now she's like face to face with him and talking to him. And when he said, "What are you looking forward to now that you're out?" Spending time with family, yeah, and uh, talking with Miss Madeline soon. Like having some time with Miss Madeline, I was like, "Whoa!" It was just—I don't know. Anybody else, Rebecca? Please tell oh, me someone else got choked up. That, that was part. my. I was, Yeah, that was 100% my moment because, you know, we hear Madeline referring to people. It's a very Southern thing. The podcast is Miss So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so. And to hear him, I mean, obviously he's been kept, you know, in the loop about the reporting they've done. And, you know, she's obviously spent a lot of time in that team with his family. And that moment where he... I mean, by the way, the journalist in me was like, good, she's getting the exclusive. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was like, she's going over to their house for Christmas. That's right. You know, she's interviewing him today. We're probably going to hear it next week. But it's like, yes, she deserves that exclusive more than anyone has ever deserved an exclusive in the history of journalism. But yeah, I really was moved by that. Kevin, what did you think? Of that final scene? Yeah. Look, it was like, it really was like written out of a book with this tornado coming through. It was like... The it was biblical. It was the idea of the rain's going to come down. It's going to be a cleansing baptism that has washed away all the pain from the past life and gives birth to a new existence. It was also the whirlwind that the judge had talked about. But more uh, more than that, it just reminds me of that that's that Latin saying, uh, uh, "Fiat justia ruat quilum." It's Latin for let justice be done, though the heavens fall, mm. which means damn the consequences. This is what's supposed to happen. Mm. And so let the heavens fall in Winona. Mm. He has to be able to come home. And he does. Now, we do hear in the podcast that an anonymous donor from New York has put up the money needed to get him out of of jail. Uh, I hope and I know I do know that there is a GoFundMe going on right now by Curtis's sister, Angela, to pay expenses while he's out of 
jail. Like he needs clothing, for instance, and just money to live on. Um, I just can't help but think like I really hope they have security. Like that's that's something that's sort of top of mind mm-hmm. for me as well. Um, but anyway, it was it was an incredible scene. I can't wait to hear what this team does next. And maybe I'm tipping my hand, but let's do what we do and let our audience know. If for some incredible reason they haven't yet listened to the latest update episode from In the Dark, should they check it out? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Do you want to give a thumbs up or thumbs down review for this latest episode of In the Dark? Um, This is like all hands and feet and everything up. Um, If you're not listening to this, this is like the one thing you must listen to it's like a christmas miracle and it's amazing and it really made my week toy ball uh so for our listeners who haven't yet checked it out uh thumbs up or thumbs down for this latest episode of in the dark uh yeah it's a a thumbs up i mean the whole thing has been pretty incredible and you just keep waiting for it to like level off or or have a moment that doesn't seem completely compelling and it just keeps going and Part of it's the story. Part of it, I think, is the in the dark teams. You know, I, I think they're just they're very judicious uh, and they're very they make a lot of just like great decisions about how to put together these episodes. Even though what they've got is really compelling stuff to begin with, but then they do the exact right thing with it. So you know, again, I I was trying to think of something in any medium that sort of compares to the combination of sort of journalistic excellence and the storytelling and then sort of the arc of events, some of which they can't control, but some of which they just highly influenced in a way, which I think is not entirely unique, but I think it is unique to get as far as like the Supreme Court. It's like close to the end of, I think, just a really monumental achievement. I 100% agree. Um, I have a personal note. I, by the way, just I should just say it. I think this episode was just about perfect in every way, like really measured. I know how hard the team worked to get it out when they did. I know how hard that is to have, be breaking news and then put something together from scratch. My only note that's just my own personal like um, like fantasy was I wanted them to break in Taylor Quimby style when the prosecutor was saying, <laughs> oh, and this. And I wanted Madeline to be like, nope, nope, that's not true. Yep, that didn't happen. <laughs> I, that's not the style of this podcast. I really didn't want that actually, but in my head, that was like my one little fantasy note. Anyway, I think this episode of this podcast is outstanding in every way, not just because of what the journalism achieved, but because of actually the production, the way it's put together, the writing, the delivery. Uh, it's just amazing. And the work this team does continues to astonish me and impress me. And it's not just about me knowing them and admiring them. It's about it being excellent. And I just want to say the Pulitzer this year for the first time ever have an audio storytelling category and every newsroom in America including mine is like what are we going to submit for the Pulitzers yeah nobody has a chance no one has a chance as my work wife Maureen said in the dark it won a James Beard award what? and that's about food like, <laughs> like they, they could win any award they could win the Academy Award for Best Picture they could win the Applebee's Dessert of the Month award they should win every award available in the world for the reporting they've done. Kevin, what do you think? I guess it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> Loser. Look, it's an achievement, the whole thing. First of all, Madeline signs off by saying, yeah, we're working on something new. And I'm like, no, don't. 
<laughs> Just retire. Don't record Beverly anything else it. ever again. Don't don't disappoint us. It cannot ever be as special as this story has been. It's sui genius. It's one of a kind, and it'll never be repeated. Um, and I think this would have been the perfect ending. This is the perfect spot to end. And now there's more to tell in the story. He just has bail. Case isn't over. I know. I you know, but I just feel like I, you know, and who knows really how the story ends. But I mean, if it ended right here and we and there was never another episode, it would be a oh, chef kiss. Can I just ask you yeah. something? I kept thinking about you listening to this. So in the Bear Brook uh, postscript episode, when they had the attorney general giving the press conference about the identities of the victims, mm-hmm. the team that I work with chose not to include <laughs> the assistant attorney general in charge of the homicide unit saying from the stage that the Bear Brook podcast led a listener to this tip. They chose not to include that for a variety of reasons. This in the dark team had the defense attorney in court playing tape of their podcast in the courtroom as basically like evidence to bolster his argument. Wouldn't you say journalists like who do that kind of work, like it's okay to say my work did this. This podcast did it and it's not braggy. It's just true. I just kept thinking of you and you saying to me, like, what is wrong with your colleagues that they didn't put that tape in the podcast? Yeah, I mean, they they could have flexed a little. And In the Dark doesn't have to. I mean, it's just, it's indisputable. Yeah. It's completely, it's indisputable. So it's just a fantastic podcast. And uh, like I said, I almost don't want to hear any more because it's just, uh, it's been such a, a, a high quality piece of journalism that, it's kind of, yeah, we just won't ever see anything like it. Moving on. Look at Henry. He's pleasant. He's non-threatening. And actually, a killing machine. A killing machine. Authorities say he was the most prolific serial killer in America. While in a Texas jail for killing his mother and girlfriend, Henry Lee Lucas began confessing to a string of unsolved killings all across the country. The rewards were apparent. Instead of heading to prison, Lucas was given milkshakes, cigarettes, and a job with his own task force to clear unsolved homicides he claimed to have committed. None of the known serial murderers approaches the record of Henry Lee Lucas. Henry Lee Lucas has killed 100 women, at least 360 people. Lucas was a drifter who murdered at random during an eight-year spree. Either they found the world's worst serial killer or it was the biggest hoax in American criminal justice history. Netflix's five-part The Confession Killer explores whether Lucas fabricated his involvement in more than 360 murders and why law enforcement was so willing to believe Lucas that they would attack anyone who challenged the story. Now we are going to be talking about plot points for The Confession Killer. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code listed in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Laura Bricker, I saw this documentary before you did. And I just kept thinking, Laura Bricker's going to lose her damn mind. <laughs> so I just want to get like a uh, a losing mind scale from you while watching this and all the twists and turns that happen because there are a lot of them. The Bricker scale? Are you okay, Laura Bricker? Are you okay? I have recovered. I should tell you that I watched this all in one day when I had the flu. Mm. And 
the first two episodes, I was like, this is kind of fucked up. And then I don't recall what happened. I think it was when the te- the Texas Rangers, the, I call them like the evil J.A.R. Ewing people in the show, mm. made me lose my mind when they started coming after the prosecutor. And then I just lost it. And I was yelling at the TV, even though I was not able to get off the couch. So um, it, was, it was the first time in a while I'd been that enraged watching something. So it wasn't the... Um fraudulent uh, victim who came forward and pretended that she was alive. Becky Powell. Becky Becky Powell. Powell. Yeah. Yeah. That was my WTF. I'm never going to get over this documentary moment. (laughs) No, that was just, well, that was pretty messed up, but that was more like, (laughs) that didn't surprise me as much because you see a lot of like the the women who write to people in prison, like the men in prison, you know, and you see like they get married and they've never met them and there's having these, so that didn't surprise me. What I was so, you know what, when they killed that guy's dog, when they poisoned Mm. Vic the DA's dog, I was like, what the fuck I'm like these people are like the mafia or something with their and why are they wearing two belts at the same time <laughs> two belts like why so, why so why to talk about <laughs> so Kevin you told me that you think this takes place in a time when no one would believe that somebody would confess to something yeah. they didn't do right yeah it's it's sort of before that time where the uh, the public and certainly not law enforcement would ever believe in false confessions or flawed interview techniques that lead to context clues Mm. uh, for the person being questioned. Um, And again, law enforcement officers, their job is to solve these cases. They very much want to bring justice to those families. And so if there's like a, a promise or a thought that maybe by going down to Texas and talking to this guy, we can get some answers, you do it. Because it seemed to be like pulling fish out of a barrel. Yeah. And he had a Japanese documentary crew making a film about him. <laughs> yeah. The entire time he's confessing to these murders. It also seems a little bit weird that uh, there is all that footage that this documentary it was great footage yeah. was being made. Yeah. And that this guy who had like one tooth in his head, apparently smelled awful all the time, clearly had a low IQ. That there's all this footage, like the the glee with which they were, you know, treating him and getting his stories. I would give him a pencil. He would sit there and draw pictures and describe what they were wearing, how they were killed. Shootings, strangulations, knifings. I've killed them in every way there is. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the great things to talk about with this case is what did each side get out of it? Mm. And why would Lucas continue to fabricate details and confess to crimes he had no business confessing to, including one that apparently puts him on death row Mm. that he need not um, have confessed to. And why would these law enforcement professionals not suspect after 200, 300 confessions? I think they did. I think they just wanted to clear their cases. Let's be real. I think that they knew. I mean, they Uh. couldn't have no, they had it to was, have known. No, that I was mean, another yeah. thing that set me off when they had that interactive map where they yeah. clearly showed <laughs> there was no freaking way he could have been. And they, they were like, um, this isn't possible. And they're like, well, he said he liked to be on the road and he was, nothing he liked <laughs> yeah. more than being on the road. I'm like, And they're like, he couldn't have even stopped to go to the bathroom or sleep. I'm like, that's absurd. Abs- right. And like, well, the murders didn't necessarily happen on those days. That's when the bodies were found. I'm like, that's a bunch of bullshit. That made me crazy. This whole thing made me crazy watching it. Sorry, Kevin. But <laughs> Now, Toby, you sent me a note that you said it's not surprising this occurred around the same time as a satanic panic. What do you mean by that? 
well, for people who aren't familiar with the Satanic Panic, that was uh, during the same time period in the 80s was when there were all these reports of Satanic ritual abuse that were being reported about, you know, babies being sacrificed and, you know, women being used as, you know, to be carrying babies to be sacrificed and people disappearing and all this stuff. And it was all BS. This is largely from the psychiatric community, but also from the law enforcement community. And it was doing, you know, essentially the same thing that they were doing in the Henry Lee Lucas case, which was in the questioning, they were giving, you know, the people who they were talking to enough clues about what they wanted to hear that those people, and these were often children, would just give it right back to them, you know? So, you know, what was going on with Henry Lee Lucas was also happening elsewhere. And I don't know if it was just at the time, like the the way you do interviews or interrogations uh, wasn't sophisticated enough or what the issue was, but these are sort of two parallel things which came out to the same uh, with the same outcome, which is that you're, you're not solving the, the crimes. Or in the case of the satanic panic, often there wasn't a crime to solve. Mm. Uh, they were just sort of being invented. Now, Laura, there's one moment, and I know we're talking all, about all of this a little bit out of order, but there is one woman in the documentary where there is a uh, woman detective from Dallas. Oh, I love her. Who <laughs> puts <laughs> a bogus in order to sort of debunk this, because there are people, by the way, who believe that the Texas Rangers are not only participating in, but encouraging other law enforcement officials from around the country to just be like, hey, you want to clear your murder? Come down and talk to this guy. He'll clear it for you. This guy who basically will confess to anything. And she puts a bogus murder file down for him, which he then confesses to. That's kind of a bit of a turning point. Uh, What did you think of her and what did you think of the people in this documentary, including Vic, the uh, DA, who believes he wasn't legit and how they kept getting stonewalled over and over and over again? Yeah, I think that's one of the other. God, I had so many triggers as I'm talking about this now. I need that better help person. I'm going to have to call them (laughs) next. Um, That was the thing that really was just maddening listening to is that you had people, legitimate people in positions connected to this case. There were smart people that were like, this isn't adding up. And they were getting stonewalled and shut down by the Texas Rangers. And it was just ridiculous. So you have Linda, who is like such a badass. And I think she said something like he would have confessed to the Lindbergh baby if we asked him to. And even she in the beginning seemed sort of hesitant to say anything about other law enforcement that were involved in the case. But, you know, she did she did it very diplomatically as she continued. But Hugh Ainsworth, that guy who was like, you know, there through the whole time with the film crew and I'm watching it was just so bizarre, the whole thing. But even he's like, this just doesn't seem right. And then he goes, was it to Jacksonville when he went when he went to Florida and he Mm. found out the guy was working. He found out here's this time card. He was working at the time and these people are alibis for him and they knew he was here and he goes back and they're like, um, yeah, they did. They just like shoot him down. And then even it's the reverse years, Madeline Barron. Hmm. Uh, and then years later, when, you know, clearly now other people, you know, everybody acknowledges this guy did not kill all these people. This was totally planted at the way that they let him kind of have details so that he would give information. And they're just like, well, Hugh didn't like the police. And that's why he did that. And I'm like. 
No, he just didn't like not having the truth for crying out loud. He was doing yeah. what the police should have been doing. So it was just maddening. And that I, I, I have to say, I really liked Vic the DA because, you know, even though it was horrible and his poor little dog got killed and all and he got divorced, all this awful stuff. But in the end, uh, you know, he was vindicated and he got a really big settlement for yeah. his troubles and um fuck you know, that tv station yeah yeah i was like go vic oh my god i was just the whole thing just made me so crazy that these people were so like didn't want to hear anybody else's perspective and they the, the texas ranger guys were just like nope 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 uh just ridiculous absolutely ridiculous now kevin i mentioned it earlier but yeah. that moment in the documentary where we learn that a woman comes forward claiming to be Becky Powell, who is likely a real murder victim of Henry Lee Lucas. And she's right. like, I'm her. And here's my husband. And here we are sitting in our home with a poster of a naked woman behind us. <laughs> giving an interview to a nationally broadcast TV show. Oh, I was shocked to find out I was dead. Becky Powell. His girlfriend, who he supposedly killed. And here she was, back from the dead. He did not cut me up and throw me, throw my body parts everywhere. When you think this couldn't get any crazier, not only do we find out that she's obviously a fraud, but that she's done this in lots of other cases, but that she, like, what is it about this period in time where a story like that would be believed like it's it's crazy there's a thing actually kind of running the theme between both of these things we're reviewing tonight and has to do with confirmation bias Mm. and so the vic who i mean this is a great twist he goes from being the da to being henry lucas's defense attorney yes it's crazy right and and he wants to believe that this really is becky but you know good on him for Standing up to the idea that, no, she's a fraud. She's, I mean, I could keep pushing her through and see how far we can get. But he knew it was the wrong thing, and so he stopped right there. Even though it made it embarrassed him and, and ruined his case. We have a lot of examples of people not doing that. So, Toby, oddest tool. Uh, this is the alleged accomplice of Henry Lucas and, like, hundreds of murders. Except we know the relationship between them is more complicated and sadder. Probably than uh, law enforcement thinks. What do you think of the sort of oddest tool as a character and, and how he is like fits into this whole story? Yeah, so I wish they'd spend a little bit more time on that because you hear about the relationship and there's sort of intimated that it was perhaps sexual. Uh, you also hear that he's not particularly smart and that he's basically going to back up whatever uh, Henry says. So that's kind of the setup you've got. But it's never clear to me, A, why, and B, what happened to him. Yeah, I agree with you, Toby. He's a super interesting character. But you know who else is interesting, Kevin? Is that nun, Clemmy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Henry's best friend, for whom he paints and draws pictures. I mean, she really also seemed to buy this idea that he was confessing completely because it sort of fit the narrative she wanted to play in the story, which was to be his absolver, right? Like, Yeah, it was a really interesting relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably the only, I think maybe he said this, this is the only female in his life who he ever felt like cared about him and who, you know, was a good role model for him. So he certainly wanted to please her. He's always trying to please the sheriff. Mm-hmm. 
And then there was this whole idea about sort of coming clean and telling the truth as sort of an act of piety. The idea comes from her, or at least it it is somewhat motivated by uh, his belief that it will please her. Toby, do you want to uh, read for the group the note that you sent me about uh, Sister Clemmie in this, sh- in this uh, documentary? If I can pull it up without losing <laughs> my feet again. What I believe you said, Toby, was Clemmie is a weird fucking person. <laughs> Yet another character that like like is benefiting from these confessions and, and believing that what he's saying is true, right? Yeah, it's so weird. And I guess maybe that's part of being a nun or something, but sort of the closeness that she felt to him. And I think it's the same thing with the sheriff, although with the sheriff, it seems pretty clear that there was something that he had to gain from that relationship. And I think they both kind of relied on each other. So that kind of made sense. Clemmy, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like of all the people who she could devote her attentions to, why would she choose this guy who she thinks has killed like 300 people? It just seems strange. Very often he would get what was called moody. Sheriff Boutwell knew that Henry was more inclined to cooperate if Clemmy believed it was the right thing to do. And very often, they would convince Clemmy that they needed her help. Sheriff Botwell said, we have families waiting for him to come and see if these are his people, these poor families. It was like, you get him there, Sister Clemmy, and I can take care of the rest. It, it was just, it was oh. very strange. That was during his Bob Ross period, Toby. So he was like a happy, gentle guy at that point. I just found that whole painting thing so bizarre. Like they bring him, those filmmakers bring him, oh, we brought you a painting set. And then the next thing you know, every time you see him in there with Clemmy, he's painting. And it was just like, that also struck me. I mean, the special treatment that he was getting um, while it was really bizarre. I'm going to do a Rebecca right now. And say, if he was black, I don't think he would have been getting that treatment. Really? You don't think so? You don't think so? No. no. I'm not going to go as, and I'm not going to go all on Rebecca. But I mean, it was wacko. It was so crazy. Like, and he's like in there painting away. And even when he was in prison, I'm like, what is going on here? Right. Um, Sucking down his strawberry milkshakes. I know. His uh, strawberry milkshake <laughs> and his cigarettes. And, you know, like, I'm just like, this is, I don't, I, I just can't even imagine. Well, they built a monster. They built a monster by giving him this uh, lovely place to go. And as long as he keeps confessing to random crimes, he doesn't have to go to a hardened prison. He can come in and answer the telephone, drink his milkshakes, hang out with his pals, and feel like he's doing something. You know, feel like he's achieving something and doing something for a greater purpose by bringing closure to all these other families. They built this trap, right? you know, and it sprung on themselves. I was going to say, it was really kind of sad, though, because when you think about it, you know, this is honest. Like, you can see how it happened, like this this trap that you said was laid. But it was like really probably the only time that he had ever had any positive validation on a regular basis in his whole life. So you can see, you know, when you heard, uh, you know, and who knows how much of his childhood story was actually true. Um, but the part that you did here, regardless, he grew up in what sounds like sort of like this Appalachia sort of area in rural Virginia and is, you know, dad's out on the mat with no legs selling things on the street side. And it sounded horrible. So, you know, I kept trying to remind myself of that when I was getting so enraged, like this guy didn't have a chance. Right. 
Well, can we just all agree that it was really surprising that George W. Bush uh, stayed yes. his execution? I was surprised to me. One time, yeah. That was very surprising to me. I had this detail of the story I didn't know. I was going to say, and he's a painter now, too. Yes. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Does he like strawberry milkshakes? And I actually really like his work. I'm going to be real. I really love W's work. Um, So one thing that I just want to like end with here is that I think the real tragedy the documentary shows us is because of cops basically from all over the country being so eager to come get their cases cleared by having Henry Lee Lucas confess to them. So they could clear the books and just close the case. There are hundreds now of unsolved cases of, you know, mostly poor people who otherwise, you know, weren't there's like not a lot of motivation to investigate them. Like that is the real kind of crime that yeah. this is getting to. Right? And that final episode was good because when they brought a lot of that stuff together where they showed you. A couple of crimes that Lucas had confessed to, and then they bring in people and make arrests. That one interrogation where the guy had killed somebody in the 70s, and all this time later, you know, they finally talked to him, and he never, you know, offended again, I believe it was, but... You know, he uh, he was a crime that uh, that he otherwise would not have been punished for. Mm. And there are hundreds of crimes like that. How about the one, Laura, you're probably losing your mind about the state trooper whose son was charged with a homicide and it was he was looking good for it. And then all of a sudden, somebody from that state police contacts the uh, the Texas Rangers and gets Lucas to take a look at it and confess to and it. And exonerates the probably yeah. guilty son of the cop, yeah. But it doesn't exonerate him, but it certainly shifts it away. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And the son's in the courtroom, and he must have been mm-hmm. like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, Dad, it's- thanks. Like, how, how can this be happening? And this poor victim who was only known as Orange Socks the whole time. Except now she's been identified he at did, the end yeah. of the film, we find out. That yeah. was great. Yeah, and why does he confess to that one? Why not? <laughs> You know, I mean, that's the one he knew would get him the death penalty. Well, he kept saying he wanted the death penalty. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I guess at the end he did. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is just, I mean, I I think for those people who are listening to this podcast, listening to this review, and like are listening to our review in advance of watching, it is hard to overstate how crazy this story is and how many things happen in it that have, you know, in moments in this documentary where your jaw is just like, what, what, what? I mean, I, I kind of think that is very much what this is about. It's kind of about that holy shit moment happening over and over and over again. So that being said, I think we should do what we do and let our listeners know, thumbs up or thumbs down, should they check out The Confession Killer on Netflix Laura Bricker, we only covered like half of what happened in it. I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Um, I'm going to say absolutely, because you're listening to this going into the holiday week, you know, that you could have some family drama. What better way to avoid that than to watch this totally bonkers documentary that can take up like half your day and get you out of all the Christmas drama? (laughs) And there's that guy from Dateline in there who looks like he hasn't aged today. Which one is that? Uh, Dennis Murphy looks exactly the same as he does now. (laughs) So that in itself. But um, it's definitely a very rage-inducing thing to watch. Um, well done, and I recommend it. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Do you think our listeners will like The Confession Killer on Netflix? I do think our listeners will like it. So it's a thumbs up. It's, you know, like everybody's been saying, it's it's a crazy story. I, I think sort of the subtext, and we, we got to it a little bit a couple minutes ago, is what part of society is most vulnerable to sort of random violence? Hmm. Um, 
because those are the people whose cases were being brought to him. And it's, you know, it's it's the disenfranchised, you know, it's 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 poor people. It's weird. It's kind of an indictment of law enforcement back then. Uh, I don't know how much that carries over to now, but probably more than you'd like to think. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's thumbs up. Unlike Laura, I do not see this as like holiday viewing necessarily. <laughs> uh, but, you know, well, whatever. I meant avoid your relatives' holiday <laughs> viewing. To each his own. Yeah, I'm also going to give it a thumbs up. I thought it was crazy. And um, I'll say the fine folks at Netflix have been doing a really excellent job with really coming out with tight uh, length appropriate <laughs> true crime material lately. I think about a year ago we were complaining that all the stuff was too long. Twelve episodes, it needed to be twelve. Mm-hmm. Everything we've watched recently from Netflix has been the right length. This is a really good example of that because in just a few episodes, in every single episode, so many things happen that have our jaws dropping, that have us going, what? And this is a great example, The Confession Killer, of something that starts in one place and ends up in completely a different place. I really enjoyed watching it, so thumbs up for me. What about you, Kevin? I am a thumbs up. They made Henry Lee Lucas too big to fail. Mm. They created a factory like Lucy in the chocolate factory, which you got to keep putting the bonbons in her mouth, keep coming out so fast. They set it up so that at some point, if they stopped him, if they turned the truth on him, that he was, you know, he was confessing to stuff that he never was at, then there were all these cases that they closed that would have to be reopened. Hmm. I think they knew that. And it was at all costs, we have to keep this lie going, even if it means going after the DA, even if it means letting other criminals walk free. Yeah. We have to keep a lid on this. It's a really interesting documentary. Again, I feel it's like the phrase comes back, uh, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. If it means that you have to reopen 100-plus homicides and declare them unsolved, then you have to do that. And I think that gives you something to think about. Is it you know right for the families that really want closure? No. But whose fault is that? Mm. Who's to blame for that, actually? Not the people that are you know, trying to get the truth out, but the law enforcement officials who went along with the charade. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of the week of the week. This was a super bad crime. Police in Iowa City busted underage college student Daniel Burleson for public intoxication. During the arrest, they confiscated a fake ID in his wallet. Problem is, it's probably the most famous fake ID of all time. Burleson had a phony Hawaiian driver's license of a 38-year-old man named McLovin. (laughs) No first name, just McLovin. (laughs) You'll recall that was the ridiculously bad ID Fogle used to buy the booze for the house party in the movie Superbad. I guess the cops missed that one at the red box because they added a charge of being in possession of false ID. Burleson said he got the thing on Amazon. Yeah, sure. So this week in time for his 21st birthday, Burleson pleaded guilty to possession and authorities dropped the fake ID charge. When actor Seth Rogen heard about the McLovin arrest, he tweeted, quote, my work here is done. 
So, panel, here's my question for you. What other teenage comedy movie-inspired trouble do you think this guy is going to get into? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, Well, since I'm not totally up on teenage comedy movies, I'm going to go with the most obvious, um, American Vandal. I think he's outdrawing some dicks. (laughs) (laughs) Terry Ball, what do you think? What other teenage comedy movie-inspired trouble is this guy definitely going to get into? Uh, I think he got sent to Alaskan military school. (laughs) Ooh. Have you guys seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Of course yes. I have. Yes. All right. What about you, Kevin? Then why aren't you laughing harder? <laughs> 69, dudes. Kevin, what teenage comedy inspired movie trouble is this guy definitely getting into? Uh, he uh, rented out his house as a brothel to pay for the repairs to his dad's Fiari while trying to get his mom's glass egg back. Wow. Wow. That is a very deep, risky business reference right there. We made it with Rebecca De Mornay. I was going to say he put a Snickers in a pool. Isn't it a baby Ruth? Baby Ruth. Yeah. <laughs> we should end on that note. But before we do, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? So we have a dog. But first, I'd like to mention this cat. If you all have not seen this cat named Keys that's going around on social media, it's a black and white cat that just stands up on its hind legs and puts its hands in the air. It's For, no For, no it. For no reason. Even I For no reason. For no reason. And and there's like millions, well, not millions, but there's many pictures of this cat and I am mesmerized by it because it's just standing there like, hands up. Um, But I have a special Christmas dog of the week for us this week. My favorite animal. It was sent from our friend Emily Fultz and she is nominating her friend's dog, Lily Bear. Lily is a very sweet rescue dog and she loves her rescued parents very much. She is always up for an outing and is a very good girl when they visit places like restaurants, breweries, and really anywhere that's dog friendly. Her dog mom has had a very rough year. She's lost someone close to her and Christmas is not a easy time this year. And so her mom, Chelsea, is a huge Crime Murders On fan and tells all her true crime friends like Emily to listen to us. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you. And so Lily would like to be Dog of the Week to wish her Merry Christmas. That's right. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Merry Christmas, Chelsea and Lily. And thanks for listening, Emily, as well. That's right. And it is the holiday. So very Merry Christmas and a happy Hanukkah and happy holidays to all of our listeners who are celebrating the holidays. And for those of you who have a hard time during the holidays and don't love to celebrate, we appreciate you too. And we hope you make it through okay. We know this can be a difficult time of year for some folks, some of us sitting in this room, perhaps. I'm raising my hand right yeah. now. You can go watch that show on Netflix, Three Christmases or That's something, right. which is really Or you really can just call Better up. Help, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you with their cat or dog or other animal to be cat of the week. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toy Ball, folks want to reach out to you and get you a better internet connection so you don't keep crapping out every time we're trying to tape this podcast. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toy Ball NH. This is the first time, I think, that's been this bad. <laughs> it's true. It's usually Lara Bricker. Uh, Kevin Flynn, folks want to reach out to you and find out where the Dunkin' Donuts is in Warner, New Hampshire. How can they find you? Uh, they'll find me. Uh, right next to the hospital <laughs> uh, at Kevin P. Flynn. All right. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official 
Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way, but that's boring. Line editing is done by the very handsome and precocious Henry Lavoy. Our web maven and newsletter captain is Meredith Plunkett. You can sign up for our newsletter at crimewriterson.com. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you'll get the Crime Writers on after show right now, as well as Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Very Charming AF uh, Leave It to Bricker Podcast. No, it's, it's by the market basket. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> You're worried. You got that wrong. It's yeah. the traffic circle by the gas station and the McDonald's and the market basket. That's right. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we say bless your heart and it totally means something else <laughs> on behalf of all the crime writers thanks for listening we will catch you later later like as all this stuff starts falling apart what happens with with Otis and why is he alright I'm in a different room now and the cats are going fucking bananas <laughs> <laughs> It's like totally distracting because I'm worried they're going to start peeing on stuff. Um, There's our outtake. Oh, poor Toby. Partners in Crime Media. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.